All right, well, let's uh, go ahead and get started, friends. We're just going to dive right in tonight. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the Gospel according to Luke. And tonight we're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. So what we'll do is we'll read those seven verses together. So you get an overview of what's happening there. And then we're going to dive in and we're going to take a look at the details of this passage. So again, if you have your Bibles, we're going to read Luke 2, 1 through 7. And then I'll share a couple of three key summary points for application at the end. So this is God's word, Luke 2, 1 through 7. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your holy word. We thank you that through scripture, you reveal yourself to us, that we are revealed to ourselves, Lord, that as we read these stories in scripture, you unveil human nature. You unveil the longings of our hearts. You expose the sin that is so often there. You also affirm those deep desires that we have for, for joy, that that is lasting for peace that never ends. And most importantly, for a savior to redeem us from the corruption, the fall, the sin that we see in the world. And so Lord, we just pray that you would speak powerfully to your people tonight. I pray that you would give us eyes and ears to hear whatever the Holy Spirit would speak to the church tonight. We pray that as we study this very, very familiar story, Lord, that we would be open to hearing it in a fresh way, in accordance with your word. And so, Lord, we just pray for a blessing now over all of us. We pray that we would receive more of Jesus this Christmas. And we ask this in his name. Amen. All right. So again, I, I think one of the challenges of this passage, and this might hold true for a number of stories in the Bible, but perhaps no story more so than the Christmas story. And that is the problem that it's so familiar People have a hard time really thinking through the details and seeing the story as being any different than maybe what they grew up with. So um, I think we all know that we there's all kinds of traditions. I know you probably grew up uh, celebrating Christmas and you have traditions. I know that I did and I grew up in the church. So we as a, as a little kid, we had coloring pages of the Christmas story. And um, I don't know, was anyone ever in a Christmas play? Did anybody dress up as a shepherd or were you an innkeeper? So I think I've done all those uh, all those roles. So, you know, we have this little scene, uh, particularly this scene in front of us tonight, uh, chapter two, verses one through seven of Luke. There's the stable, it's, it's wooden, and uh, there are cute little animals uh, are all around and they're watching, you know, these curious animals, including donkeys, they're, they're watching baby Jesus and he's in a wooden trough and there's the hay and it looks all, you know, nice and soft. And, 
and you know it's a fairly sanitized image of what's happening and and of course i'm not belittling our our communication to children and of course you always have to kind of boil it down or you know disseminate it in such a way um you know that you're putting the cookies on the bottom shelf right you don't want uh to be communicating things in such a way that children don't understand so i, I don't think it's wrong to teach children uh introduce them to the christmas story with those kinds of images um but i do think it's a problem when we teach adults the same way <laughs> can i get an amen for that i mean at, at some point we do have to start giving the grown-up versions of the biblical stories and the source book for doing that is the Bible itself. So I'm not somebody that feels like I need to go outside the Bible and give you some, you know, hidden knowledge uh, out there, you know, uh, and this is the real story because I know there's a lot of people that do that. Even Bible scholars will do that, um, but they'll do it based on things not in the Bible. But I actually believe that if we just stick with the Bible, we might actually be shocked sometimes and surprised by what's there and i i don't think i'm going to share anything tonight that if you were really to think about it you you wouldn't know for yourself but i think like i said the story is so familiar we just pass right by it's like that picture you've got on the wall maybe in your kitchen or your living room and maybe it, it's set it has some encouraging words on there uh maybe you got a bible verse on there but it's it's been there for so long you walk by it in the room you know it's there subconsciously you know it's there but but you don't pay attention to it. And I think that's sometimes how passages and stories like these are. We walk right by, it's in the room, we know it's there, but we're not paying attention to it. And so that's what I hope to do tonight is just kind of slow down and try to break down some of the things that I don't think that we often think about. And let me kind of start it off like this. Uh, what was your worst Christmas ever? Go ahead, uh, in the comment section, let's just take a minute. What what was your worst Christmas ever? And maybe let's start just, let's make it brief. What year, what year would you say? Was it this year, your worst Christmas experience ever? Would you say it's 2020? Or would you say it's another year? I'm, I'm just curious. Um, I think, you know, one of the things unique about 2020 is we're all obviously experiencing uh, many similar things. And that's unlike many years past where you know you might have had a very very rough christmas season there's a memory when you think of christmas there was some bad thing um that happened and so you you might be able to say well that was that was a really bad christmas or that was a maybe my worst experience but that probably would have been unique to you maybe or your family that might not have been true for neighbors or other people in your church or other people uh in your country um so 2020 is interesting maybe it is the worst christmas for some people um, some people can't travel. They're not able to uh, go see family. I just saw, um, I don't know if you've uh, kept up with this, but um, the UK is imposing another travel ban uh, tonight. Apparently there's some new strain of the virus of, of COVID-19. And so um, they're going to shut down all traveling to see family. So apparently all these people in the UK are fleeing to the rail stations to hop on train and try to get to grandma's house before the UK government shuts it down. So I know for a lot of people, the worst Christmas ever might be this one. But let me just submit to you as a possible candidate for the worst Christmas ever. It's possible that one of the worst Christmases ever was the first Christmas. One of the worst Christmases ever might have been the first Christmas. And I'll talk a little bit about what I mean by that. So again, when we talk about having a good Christmas, 
many of us, it's not our relationship to God and how much we're growing in the Lord and how our faith is growing and how much we're worshiping God. Um, but a lot of it has to do with our experience around us. Isn't that true? I think that's when we say good Christmas, bad Christmas, um, we kind of mean what was happening around us. But I think if you look at the Christmas story itself, you actually see that that was not a good Christmas either. And so I think for any of you that have had a bad Christmas in the past, or maybe you're having a bad Christmas here, I just, I hope you can all rethink what the Christmas story really means. Because what I want to suggest is that the real Christmas story, the Christmas story in the Bible, is not a story that comes in and says, you can enjoy this message, you can enjoy this truth, if everything in your life is as it should be. For many people, they say, I can't have a good Christmas unless this situation is fixed. I've, I've got the money here. This person says they're sorry. I can travel to this place and everyone is at the tape at my family table and there's no empty chairs. And unless that happens, I can't have a good Christmas. Again, I think that's how a lot of us naturally feel. I know I certainly have felt that way myself. But what I want to suggest is the real Christmas story, the story of the Bible that we're going to look at tonight is not a story that needs everything in your life to be fine in, in order for it to be true and in order for it to be meaningful and transformative for you. And one of the chief reasons for that is because that is exactly the situation in which the first Christmas occurred, that many things were wrong with the world, blatantly wrong, inconvenient, dangerous even, and yet it is that situation into which Jesus Christ was born into the world. So hopefully we, we can rethink that, these ideas of, I have to have a tree, got to have the bills paid, got to have you know this person in my life and that person not in my life and, and this situation. Friends, no, all you need for a good Christmas is Jesus. And I want to show you that tonight. So let's begin by looking at verse 1. So it says, and it was in those days that a decree from Caesar Augustus was sent out. Um, so stop right there. Now, the big headline here for the world is, is not Jesus is being born, okay? Um, for us, it is. As we look back and we see Jesus was born to, that's the headline for us, right? Or at least it should be. But if you go back in time, you're, you're back there 2,000 years, the big headline um, if I can anachronize a little bit, the big headline in the news is Caesar Augustus issues executive decree, executive order, forcing, compelling people to leave, travel somewhere else in order that money be taken from them. That, that would have been the headline. And let's just explore this a little bit more. Um, first of all, who was Caesar Augustus? Um, one of the interesting things about the Gospel of Luke is that Luke, unlike the other Gospel writers, is clearly trying to situate the Christian Gospel, the Christian story, not just within the story of Israel, which he certainly does and he must do, but Luke does something a little bit different. Luke not only wants to situate the story and birth of Jesus within the story of Israel, but Luke wants to situate it within the story of the world, the story of secular history. 
In other words, the story of redemptive history of what God is doing to save sinners from their sins is set right within a political theater, a political drama in which the apparent headlines of the day are not that a savior is born in Bethlehem, but that there is a political savior whose name is Augustus, and he is on the throne, and he's issuing decrees, and he's changing people's lives, and that's the story. That is how many people perceive Caesar Augustus. If you know a little bit about Roman history, you'll know that um, the, the rise of Caesar, um, you can see it as sort of a zenith of Roman culture, and in certain ways it probably was, but if you were a, a Roman and you loved your country, and you loved Rome, um, you might have loved the fact that Rome was a republic. Rome was a republic for about 400 years before Julius Caesar. And famously, Julius Caesar, though there were many things going on, there was corruption in the populace, um, the orator Cicero decried um, the, the lapse in virtue amongst the Roman people. So he saw not just politics as the problem, but he saw a lack of virtue amongst people as, as signaling a very serious problem in Roman society. Coupled with that, you had lots of infighting within the Senate and with um, the higher classes of uh, citizens in Rome. And so over time... Julius Caesar was able to start to consolidate power, and many people kind of pin on him the death of the Roman Republic. And Caesar, of course, was named dictator for life. This was something that began to terrify a number of the senators, and as we all famously know from history, and if not from real history, certainly from William Shakespeare, we know that the senators plotted together and they stabbed him to death in a Senate meeting. And reportedly by Shakespeare, uh, Julius Caesar's last words were, et tu, Brute. Of course, the historian Suetonius says that's not quite accurate. What Caesar actually said was, you too, my child. Uh, speaking about the fact that he had adopted Brutus and Brutus uh, ultimately betrayed him. But Caesar was consolidating this power and he was murdered. And of course, he had an adopted son named Octavian. And Octavian would fight with two other rivals. They were part of a triumvirate, which just means the rule of three. Um, famously, he fought against Mark Antony. We all know the story of Mark Antony and Cleopatra. And famously, in 31 BC, Octavian defeats Mark Antony at the Battle of Actium. And what that does is that consolidates his power. And just four years later, unlike Julius, where he was murdered when he grabbed a hold of power, because of the chaos that ensued, even the Senate came around and said, you know what, we're going to get behind Octavian. And that's when they give him the honorific title Augustus, which means revered one, revered in a divine sense. Now, something that's very interesting about this divine status, it's reported that Augustus, he shunned the idea of being called a god. He didn't want to be called a god. He thought that might have been a little much. But you know what he did find acceptable? And that was to deify his adopted father, Julius. And so the divine Julius, the Julius was a god. And guess what that made Augustus? 
son of God. That's actually a title on inscriptions from the time of Augustus. And I actually have um, the, the record of what one of those fragments actually says. It's called the Marian inscription. So, so think about this in light of what Luke is going to say about Jesus. Notice the contrast between Jesus born in humble circumstances in a manger and birthed in Bethlehem because of the decree of a tyrant. And here is the language used of this man, Augustus, from the Marian inscription, quote, Divine Augustus Caesar, son of a god, imperator of land and sea, the benefactor and savior of the whole world. Notice how Augustus is called both son of a god and savior of the world. Now, this makes sense because that's how many people looked at political leaders. If you're going to have a savior in the world, they thought, if you're going to have a son of a God, he's going to be a political figure. And when I use that word political, I mean in accordance with the politics of this world. And so for many people, the divine Augustus, this son of a God, this savior of the world, was the one people should be looking to, to bring peace. And of course, he did bring a kind of peace, but it wasn't peace that ruled out of love, but rather out of power and fear. Power and fear were the tools of Augustus, and he used them quite effectively. And so the headline in those days for most of the world was not Jesus, a son of a carpenter born in an animal stable in the little town of Bethlehem. Rather, the headline 2,000 years ago, the thing on everybody's mind would have been Augustus Caesar. Now, let's uh, kind of connect this a little bit with our situation. Um, again, I, I live in California. It, it might depend on where you live, but um, a lot of people are certainly not happy with what those in authority decisions they've made, whether it's uh, Governor Newsom in California or Governor Cuomo uh, in New York and all these places. And I confess, I don't know enough about all the different orders in various states to really comment on them, but I'm certainly pretty well aware of what's happened um, here in California. And one of the things that I know people are preoccupied with, including Christians, mind you, um, is that the headline is COVID-19. The headline is the presidential election. The headline is there's a tyrant passing decrees that it's ruining our businesses. And then he's a tyrant because he was at the French Laundry in Napa with his mask off, sitting two inches away from people in an enclosed place. And so there, there's this picture. And so because of all that, people feel like I can't have a good Christmas. That like That's the headline on my mind. Now, let me just point out that again, the, the reason for this setting, in other words, what seems in the text to make Joseph and Mary's trip to Bethlehem possible is an executive order by this tyrant named Caesar Augustus. So notice that with me. And it came to pass in those days. Okay, so that phrase, those days, is Luke's attempt to connect this story with the story preceding it 
which is the story of John the Baptist. So again, this is a different scene, a picture, a movie where um, you, you've got a story playing out in an apartment and then it cuts and suddenly it's going to uh, a scene on the highway or something like that. So it's the same story, same movie, if you would, but we're moving to a different scene. And that phrase, in those days, is a reference to this is the same story that went before. Namely, the story of God's dynamic activity through the Holy Spirit in which many of the promises of God long given before to Israel are being brought to fruition. The prophet like Elijah has come. His name is John the Baptist. His birth was only possible because of the working of the Holy Spirit who enabled a woman past the age and ability of having a child to suddenly have a child. The birth is attended to by prophetic utterance, which had been dormant, as far as we know, for 400 years. No prophetic word of God. That seems to be actually affirmed, by the way, in intertestamental Jewish literature. Even though much was written during the intertestamental time, it was widely acknowledged that no inspired word from God was written between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. So the Holy Spirit, as I've said before, his hand is all over the Christmas story, and that brings us to this story. So in those days, this is a continuing of the story of John the Baptist and of God's promises to Israel being brought to fulfillment in the Messiah, Jesus. So it came to pass in those days that a decree, so the word in Greek is dogma. Um, you might know that, I, I believe the Catholic tradition um, hold, holds uses that language and that refers to doctrine. Um, here, this is most likely a Greek translation of a Latin word that is technical for a law of some kind. So some kind of technical language for a law. Um, in our language today, we might refer to it as an executive order. So this is something that Caesar Augustus was able to do by virtue of his unprecedented power as emperor. And think about this for a moment. Imagine if, whether it's the president of the United States or, or say a governor, if they were able to do something like that, imagine them compelling you to leave your state, the state you live in. So in other words, if you weren't born where you are, uh, so today for many of the, uh, our church that were, uh, obviously they live here in California, uh, but many were not born in California. So imagine being forced by decree to leave the state you're in and go somewhere else. And for the cherry on top, the reason you will be compelled to leave and travel somewhere else and you can't stay where you presently live is because they want to know in order to tax you. And so that's the kind of power that is going on here. And so the story of that first Christmas was one of political tyranny, a political tyrant in control, Remember, of course, this is the story of Israel and God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to the patriarchs, to King David. It's the story of what God is doing in line with all of his covenant promises. And yet, here is Israel being occupied by a foreign invader, the Roman Empire. And so that first Christmas, it doesn't look like God is sovereign to many people. 
to many people they go no caesar is sovereign that's real power political power is real power and man if you want to get things done you need power like caesar you need to be able to issue an executive order that makes people compels them to leave where they are go somewhere else and to be able to extract their money and i think we can all understand yeah that that looks like real power to me i mean that really affects people's lives but let's just hold on to that thought for a moment because the rest of the story is going to begin to subvert that very idea so continuing there in verse one and it came to pass in those days that a decree a dogma went out from caesar augustus that all the world should be registered now the word world here is not the normal word for world uh, when we think of for god so loved the world that's the greek word cosmos um, you know, we get our word cosmology, or we might say with the strong O sound, the cosmos in Greek, it's cosmos, but hey, whatever. Um, so that's usually the word when we think of world, like the planet. Um, but this is a different word being used here, and it comes from the word oikonomia. Uh, oikonomia is the combination of two Greek words, the prefix being oikos, which means house, and namos, which means law. So literally house rules. And out of that, we get the English word economy. Um, so in other words, it's saying that all the economy, all of the house managed by rules is being registered. Now, what that amounts to is all the world that is under the jurisdiction of the Romans. So again, this isn't cosmos this isn't saying you know he, he taxed native americans you know in in north america no it's it's not cosmos it's not all the world but it was all that area that empire the whole empire which was the greatest empire known in the world at that time being uh, spread all over the place and caesar is exercising power over all of them compelling people to go and you remember that uh, even though the Romans did develop a, a pretty sophisticated legal system, one in which is still the foundation for Western law codes to this day, and yet certainly there were far less rights than any modern Western, especially an American person, would be comfortable with. Uh, some of us today, especially, again, as, as Americans, uh, we read this and you think, why didn't, why didn't Joseph just say no? Why didn't he just say, you know what, Augustus, you're overstepping your bounds. You're acting like a tyrant. I don't care if you issue an executive order. I'm not going. Uh, well, one of the reasons would have been that they can kill you. Um, and, and again, this is something that if Caesar wants to do it, it is legal to do. He has the right to kill you. He has the right to seize your property. Um, and as far as the legal system is concerned, he can bypass that if he wants to. Really, if Caesar really wants to kill somebody, the only reason he would hold a court session and it would be a kangaroo court would be for public appearance. That would be the sole reason if Caesar has purpose to kill someone, you just set it up so it looks good because they cared about publicity back then. They didn't have social media, but they did have word of mouth and they did have eyewitnesses. And so they still needed good press even back then. So again, we, we forget that people were under extreme compulsion 
in those days in political terms that people weren't they didn't have the mindset of oh i i have a say i have a right to a say no i i disagree with the person who's in charge it's and again that's not to say uh, our way of thinking is wrong in some ways i think it's it's very good and it's certainly a development but it's just to say it's a different mindset and these people in this story are are not conditioned through the experience in the same way that us modern people are today so caesar augustus uh issued a decree that all the world should be registered now this is an interesting point and i'll just bring it up the scripture really doesn't tell us it's clear that luke is letting us know that augustus issued this edict in order to get mary and joseph to bethlehem so remember they're in nazareth right now and in terms of a plot so if we think of this as a story with a plot and characters um the plot is wait a minute we've got a problem mary is about to give birth and she's in the wrong place and by wrong place i mean the whole story hinges on her being in the right place and that is because god is true to his word or at least that's what god says i honor my word above my name i the lord do not change uh, the grass withers the flower fades but the word of the lord stands forever so the truthfulness of god who has prophesied through micah that the messiah would not be born in nazareth but bethlehem it's sort of hanging in the balance oh gosh if mary gives birth there then the prophecy given in micah 5 2 is false so we we have a, a, a plot we have the tension that's taking place in that story now here's what we don't know would mary and joseph had gone to bethlehem even without this decree from caesar augustus well the simple answer is i don't know um, on the one hand it's possible they were not aware of the micah 5 2 prophecy um, again we have to remember people did not own bibles at this time uh, they didn't make bibles at this time if you remember codices were not developed until hundreds of years later we didn't really have codices until centuries later they had individual scrolls and to make scrolls to copy them from other scrolls was very very expensive and time consuming you would need the equivalent of a grant basically like a research grant we do this in university systems today that um, if a, a, a sting distinguished professor wants to write a book but he can't do it he doesn't have the time he's got to teach his regular uh, workload his class load and says i really want to do this i can't do this oh hey there's this uh, grant fund that issues money for this kind of thing i'll submit my thesis my proposal to them and they go hey we like that we're gonna pay you to write that book and you're gonna be able to take time off from your regular job teaching classes and you can write this this great book so it was a huge undertaking so remember nobody had individual bibles they would hear the scriptures for the most part they would hear the scriptures they wouldn't read it they would hear it being read and and so are you going to if you just hear it and i highly recommend we listen to the bible i recommend listening to audio Bible. i think it's a fantastic experience it is different from reading it 
Um, but one of the things I, I think perhaps if you want to say it's a negative or a weak point of hearing the Bible is sometimes you can't be as meticulous on smaller points. Um, because when you really begin to focus in on a word or a phrase or an idea or a theme, um, the, the reader just continues on and keeps going and you're like, okay, I, I just got to move on with they're no longer where I'm at. They're moving on. I got to catch up and think about what they're saying. So it's possible that they're not aware of it. That's a possibility. In which case, yes, it was necessary that the tyrant Caesar Augustus, who called himself son of God, savior of the world, issue a decree that sends Joseph and Mary by compulsion to the land of Bethlehem. So that's that's a possibility. Um, another one, and I don't like this one, per, you know, personally, I, I suppose it's possible uh, Mary and Joseph, though the Bible's very clear, these are upright people, they're righteous, um, but in biblical language, that doesn't mean sinless. Uh, everyone's a sinner. The Bible's actually very clear of that. Um, Mary was a sinner, not, not a notorious sinner, not, not some terrible person. No, sinner in the sense of she inherited a fallen nature from Adam, like every human being ever has, and that there's, you know, at, at the very least, some sins in the heart because she's human. This is not to denigrate Mary or Joseph. It's very clear. As far as human beings go, these are wonderful people. The Bible would call them just and upright. So again, just know when it uses that language about people other than Jesus, it's not saying that they were sinless. But what it may be saying is that they were covenantally in right relationship with God and that their sins, whatever they were, were atoned for. That by faith they are trusting in God, they're being obedient to God, and God is blessing them, washing them, and cleansing them of all sin. So I say all that because one of the theories is that Mary and Joseph did know about the prophecy and they were going to refuse to go. Now again, I personally, you know, I, I opt for the, the first um, choice. I, I think that's better. Um, but again, uh, I acknowledge some people believe the second is more likely. And and just to unpack it a little bit more, it's not like Jonah, where he's like, no, I'm not going. It it was a little more, more practical, and there was a little bit more involved there. So just to give you an idea, so the journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem is about 90 miles. So about 90 miles. Nazareth is up in the north in the Galilee area, and Bethlehem is down south, southwest of Jerusalem, and that's about a 90-mile journey. Now remember, this is in the days of uh, pedestrian travel. That That's the way you get around. And so roughly the average day of travel was probably by foot about 20 miles a day. And again, that that's pretty good. I know many of us probably are not in good enough shape to walk 20 miles in a day, especially for successive days. So 20 miles a day, somebody who walked and walked and walked their whole life would be able to go 20 miles in a day on a journey. But given that Mary is about nine months pregnant at this point, it's more likely she traveled about half that. So that's about 10 miles a day. Now, if the journey is 90 miles, that, that meant this is a nine-day journey, friends. Nine days of, of journeying all day. Furthermore, if this is in the winter, when we believe that it was, it would have been very cold. Temperatures in that area can get down to the low 30s, so around freezing, and it can be raining at that time. And so you've got a nine month pregnant woman traveling by foot or, or on a donkey 
90 miles, 10 miles a day, nine straight days in cold and possibly wet weather. Add to that, we've actually found inscriptions marking out some of the forests along the way as being dangerous for travelers to beware of wild boars and other creatures that could cause great bodily harm or even death to would-be travelers. Then if you add to that, there were thieves and bandits roaming the area as well. They didn't have a, a CHP or highway patrol like we do now, although the Romans would develop this, by the way, uh, early form of it anyway. So this, if you, you consider all of that, it might be the case, some would say, that they're like, look, we can't do it. It's not right. It's not safe. They could even have kind of a, a holy reason for saying, no, we can't go to Bethlehem. Hey, we were told she's supposed to give birth to the Messiah. And if and if she if he dies on the way, well, that doesn't that kind of ruin the whole thing. So that's a possibility. Like I said, uh, the scripture doesn't tell us, but what it seems to imply is that it's Augustus's decree that makes this prophecy fulfilled. And that's and that's a huge point because the whole question is who is sovereign? Who is the rightful king of the world? Who has real power? What does it mean to have real power? Is it political? Is it something else? And so all these issues are being wrestled with right here in this very text. Let's move on to verse 2. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. Now, again, for the integrity and reliability of the Bible, being familiar with Luke chapter 2, verse 2 is something that you ought to take a mental note of. And that is because it is on the basis of Luke chapter 2, verse 2, that many critics of the Bible suggest that the Bible is not historically reliable. So I just want to raise that flag. If you haven't heard that before, just be aware of that. This is one of these apologetic um, arguments that we need to be aware of as Christians, because for many people, that is ultimately where the issue is. Is the Bible historically reliable? Now, the basis for the argument that the Bible is not historically reliable and in, and in particular, Luke chapter 2, verse 2, is that we have no record of Quirinius um, being governor in, in Syria at this time. So what do we have, friends? So first of all, there, there's no record that refutes the idea that he is. So just to make that clear, there's no record that refutes that the biblical account here is true. So, so again, worst case scenario, you have an argument from silence. You cannot say yes, you cannot say no, merely from the extra biblical evidence alone. But let me submit to you a couple of ways of thinking about this text. First of all, I would say there's going to be many things in the Bible that you're not going to find evidence for. There's going to be many things in the Bible. Um, if, if something happened and it's gone, it's been destroyed, it, you just can't find it. Um, that It's not like every single thing... Um, will guaranteed to be found. But here's what we do know. Many, many things have been found. And those many, many things, thousands of things, you can see them, not just, of course, on the internet, which is wonderful, but in many museums throughout the world. I know some of you have probably seen these. I know uh, the British Museum 
uh, and the British Library in London and the United Kingdom are amazing. And they have so many different pieces of archaeological evidence that validate and support the biblical claims. There are so many pieces of evidence that what happens is if you are if a person is aware of their bias, but they set it aside for a moment and they say, hey, is there enough evidence out there archaeologically to validate the Bible's historical claims? I believe that that is the belief you will walk away with. You'll see, wow, that there is a lot. Now, especially when you compare it to other religious books, for example. So uh, one illustration of this would be the Book of Mormon. Okay, so the Book of Mormon makes a number of historical claims. Uh, really, its whole story um, is one that claims to be historical, um, but is extremely, I'd say it's ultimately problematic, actually. So again, not, not picking on Mormons, and if we have any Mormons or Latter-day Saints, LDS, whatever um, the preference is, I would be more than happy to talk with you, email, uh, whatever the case is. So again, um, I'm just trying to state the facts as I understand them. Um, the Book of Mormon paints a historical picture uh, of a group of two groups of people descended from uh, the ancient Israelites, and they lived in North America, and they were called the Lamanites and the Nephites. And the claim is that these great battles, these epic wars, took place in upstate New York. Now, that's very close by in the United States. And unlike certain places in the world where due to ongoing war or bad political relationships with foreign nations, we simply cannot go in and see what's there, which, by the way, is one of the reasons why we don't even have, we have tons of evidence for the Bible archaeologically. We would have even more, but there are many groups of people that don't want us looking for more. So be aware of that as well. But in upstate New York, that's something we have access to. We can go verify that. And the Smithsonian Institute has gone on record as saying there has been found exactly zero pieces of evidence supporting those historical claims in the Book of Mormon. Zero. Not, not like a small number. Zero. And if you compare that to the Bible, which has thousands, literally Thousands and thousands in various kinds, by the way, in various places as well, and it supports the claims there, then what you walk away with is the Bible has already proved itself to be trustworthy. And if it's proved itself trustworthy on thousands of occasions, if I perchance come to a place where as yet, and perhaps we will find something um, that expressly deals with Luke 2 too, that is a real possibility. But nevertheless, if through thousands of means of verification of evidence, the Bible has proved itself to be reliable, then I should trust it in areas where I don't necessarily have um, another piece of evidence. So just to point that out, there's no evidence contradicting it. However, what we do have, and here's the problem, is there is a record of a census when Quirinius was governor, but the problem is the date. That's 6 AD. So again, uh, that's 10, 10 to 14 years after the birth of Jesus. Now you ask, well, how do, where do we get 10 to 14? Well, kind of the markers are, so we know for a fact that occurred in 6 AD. We know that Herod the Great from the Bible was the king. Remember, he's the king at the time that Jesus is born, and he um, wants to 
kill Jesus however he can and tries to lie to the Magi in order to find out where Jesus is. So Herod the Great died in 4 BC. So 4 BC. So that's about 10 years there and of course maybe sometime before 4 BC. So that's kind of what scholars are working with as far as dating is concerned. So we do have evidence that Quirinius was a real guy, that he was governing, functioning in some sort of uh, position of governance, and he issued a census in 680. So that's what we have. Now, some people on that basis say, oh, well, that's a contradict. Well, but here's the problem. There are other explanations. In other words, is it possible um, that Quirinius did it before? Is it possible um, that there's more than one census? So um, there are other possibilities. And let me just suggest one from the text, okay? So one I would suggest from the text is it actually says when Quirinius um, it could be first meaning before, okay? So there's actually an example of this where this same word prote is used to mean before. So if it means before here, look, look how that impacts the text. Verse 2 would then mean this census took place before Quirinius was governing Syria. So that is a real possibility. And we have a biblical example where the word prote is used precisely that way. And that example is the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 18. Many of you probably are familiar with this statement. Jesus is speaking to his disciples on the night he's going to be betrayed, and he says, know this, if the world hates you, know that it first hated me. In other words, it hated me before it hated you. So again, it could be interpreted as happening before Quirinius. So it might not even refer to Quirinius, simply the census that came before. That is a legitimate grammatical possibility, and it would solve the apparent problem. Um, the other is that prote can mean the first of the censuses. So in other words, maybe there was a census prior to the one that we have a record of that took place in AD 6. But in any case, I just want you all to know this is a text that is used by people to attack the Christmas story and the Bible more broadly, that you ought to be aware of that, and that you should just kind of have a basic idea. I wouldn't expect anyone to memorize it, but just have an idea. There are real answers, both grammatical and historical, that we can use to answer that objection. Verse 3, so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Uh, again, they Joseph and Mary don't seem to argue or fight this decree by this tyrant. They simply go. For whatever reason, uh, they, they go. Verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Again, so this is fulfilling the prophecy of Micah 5.2, where God speaking through Micah prophesies that it was going to be in Bethlehem that the Messiah would be born. And so we see God sovereignly using the so-called Son of God, Augustus, the so-called Savior of the world, the person that everybody thought he's got real power. He's the one in charge. And what is scripture saying? God is the one who is sovereign. 
over all the powers of this world, over all earthly political power, and he can even use tyrants and executive orders like the one issued here for God to ultimately accomplish his purpose. So friends, there's no governmental agency. There's no president or governor or senate or a court that is sovereign over God. The God of the Bible is sovereign over all of these things, including Augustus Caesar himself. Verse 5, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. Verse 6, so it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. Now, again, we don't know how long they were there before she gives birth. Uh, one of the ways we naturally think of it is, oh, they, they arrived at the nick of time. Uh, they got there at night. We're knocking on the door of the Motel 6. And they said, no, sorry, no more rooms, no vacancy. And, and so they run into the nearest barn and, and she gives birth right there. That, that might have happened. Um, but the language is such that it could have happened uh, over a period of time. They could have been there a day. They could have been there two days, a couple days. Uh, we, we don't know how long they were there. But again, the idea is not that people were rejecting Jesus, but they're oblivious to it. You know what I mean? It's it's not, it's not, I mean, sometimes there's like outright rejection of Jesus, but for other people, they're just simply preoccupied with other things. They're preoccupied with their own life. They're like, look, hey, I just had to travel from Timbuktu to get all the way here. I've been greatly inconvenienced. I can't stand it. I'm constantly being reminded that we've got no political power to decide our own political future. A tyrant from a distant land who doesn't understand us is issuing these executive orders by fiat and forcing us to come here. And on top of that, they're going to take my money from me. And friends, I've just got so much to think about. That's the headline. For other people, again, the headline is, man, Caesar, he's the guy. But what is happening here in the Christmas story is God is subverting all of the power paradigms of the world and demonstrating that it is not Caesar, but Jesus, who is the Son of God, Savior of the world. And the way in which, even here, friends, even here in the manger, we see that the way God rules the way that God reigns, the kingship of Christ is not going to be like any earthly kingship that has ever been seen before. It is going to be otherworldly, something that Jesus affirmed before Pontius Pilate. My kingdom is not of this world. And you know what? He wasn't just saying that on that particular day as he stood before Pilate, but that was true even here in the Christmas story. Jesus' kingdom was not of this world. Verse 6, so while they were there, they were the days were completed for her to be delivered. Verse 7, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Um, again, it wasn't a, a proper inn in any sense that we modern people might conceive of it. Um, as a matter of fact, it probably wasn't even an ancient first century inn as we think of it. Um, the Greek word used here is not the word that is used of an inn. It is actually the word used to describe a guest room in a house. In other words, this is the same Greek word used by Jesus later 
in Luke chapter 22, when Jesus is getting ready to celebrate the Last Supper with his disciples, and he says, hey, I want you to go into the city, and I want you to find a place for us, and tell the man that we want a, a guest room in his house. And he uses the same word here. So it's not describing an inn there, it's describing a guest room. Whereas in Luke chapter 10, verse 34, we do have a different word used, and that does seem to refer to more of what would have been the ancient equivalent of an inn. So there was no guest room available for them. And so what they did is they found a place where the animals would be stored. Now, that can be two particular places that we know of. Uh, number one, it could have actually been indoors on the first floor of a house. So many houses were two stories and people would live up on the second story. And in the winters, the animals would come inside and live on the bottom floor. And of course, that would not be the most desirable place, obviously, for people to live. But if you had no room upstairs, it would be a better alternative than being outside in the cold. So that's one possibility. But another possibility, and this has the weight of Christian history and tradition behind it, and that is that Jesus was born in a cave. And we know that caves were commonly used as stables for animals. And so if Jesus was born in a cave, picture this, if he was born in a cave and he's being wrapped with these swaddling cloths, then what we already have an image of is the reason for which Jesus was born. In other words, friends, if you look forward to the future, how did Jesus' earthly life come to an end? The picture the Gospels give us is Jesus' earthly ministry ended in a cave wrapped in cloths. And so some think that this is no coincidence, but rather this is symbolic pointing forward to the reason that Jesus came into the world, that even from the manger, Jesus came to die. His death on the cross was no accident. His life was not cut short in the sense that we often think of it being cut down in his prime, but rather he died exactly at the time he was destined to be for the very purpose he was born into the world to redeem sinful humanity, that he might be their king and that they might be members of his kingdom. So again, I think if we think through a lot of these different details, maybe we can understand and experience the Christmas story in a different way this year. I know many people like to go to those living nativities or Christmas reenactments and they're so fun and they're cool and it's kind of like give you a little bit of an idea of being there. But of course, one of the things we do is we sanitize it and we make it all clean, literally and figuratively and joyful. And yet that first Christmas was anything but. Again, just to recap, a political tyrant taking unbelievable control over the known world, issuing an executive decree that forces a nine-month pregnant woman to go on a nine-day journey in freezing cold and dangerous conditions in order to get to Bethlehem that they might take their money from them via taxes. And yet the story of the Bible is that God ordained all of that to come to pass. That Caesar, though he looks like he's on the throne, is actually not on the throne. Jesus, God, 
is on the throne, getting everything where he wants it to go. So three final thoughts before we go tonight. Number one, God's ways are not our ways. Number one, God's ways are not our ways. Um, this language is found explicitly in Isaiah 55, verse 8. God says, my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than our thoughts. Again, as we look at the Christmas story, this is not the way that any of us would have written it. We wouldn't have written it. If we were going to write the story about how somebody conquers, it wouldn't take place because they were subject to the decrees of a tyrant and that they're sent with an ob obscure couple to an obscure little town to be ob obscurely born with nobody paying attention that we would count as being important in the world. And yet that is how Jesus is brought into the world. Very clearly, we are being taught that God's ways are not our ways. This announcement, this birth, notice it bypasses Caesar and Quirinius, these two powerful political figures, and yet they are ignorant to what true power actually is. And rather, this true power is revealed to Joseph and Mary. A lesson we can get from this as well is that God honors character over position. God honors character over position. The world around us, and unfortunately many Christians do as well, they honor position. They honor people with clout. How many followers do you have? Uh, how popular are you? Um, you know, how much money do you have? How successful are you? And people think that's real power. That That's what it is. But you know what? The Lord honors people like Joseph and Mary. They may not have a title. They, they have no political power. They don't even have religious authority. They're not even the leaders of a religious community. They're, they're nothing like that. And yet they've been presented to us in the scriptures as honorable people. People that loved God and obey God's word. And you know what? God honors that. That delights the Lord more than being somebody who is, quote, super successful by worldly standards, lots of power, lots of money, lots of fame, lots of followers on Instagram. And yet if they're not honorable in their hearts towards God and God's word, God is not impressed. Humans might be impressed, but God is not impressed because his ways are are not our ways. Number two, do not despise the day of humble beginnings. Do not despise the day of humble beginnings. Now, this statement comes from Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10. And it seems to be that the way God begins, and I believe this is because he's testing what's in people's heart. You know, many people are willing to get on the bandwagon with something when it's already successful and it's going well and all the major work, all the hard work, sweat, blood, and tears have been done. And then people are like, yeah, I'll get on board with that. But you know what? God is looking for people who have a spirit of a pioneer, of somebody who is willing to go where the gospel is needed, of people who are willing to go to a church where this, they need to serve, they can use their gifts and talents, and not just sit back and eat popcorn and watch the show happen. God says, don't despise the day of small beginnings. 
Now, when God said that through Zechariah the prophet, the problem was that the temple was in ruins and it was discouraging the people. They looked at it and said, uh, some of us remember what the temple looked like and this is a mess. It's never going to be good. We, we give up. It's too much work. We give up. It'll never be great. The, the good old days are in the past and that's where they'll always stay. Other people may have seen the temples in Babylon. They've seen the temple of Marduk and they look and go, wow, we saw the temples there and look at what we have. It's nothing. And so as God encourages the people to rebuild the temple, he says, do not despise the day of small things. Do not despise the day of humble beginnings. For if we become people who despise the day of small beginnings, we will be the kind of people who miss the baby in the manger. Because that is certainly the smallest of beginnings. And I believe that is intentional. Somebody would need to have eyes of faith to see that a baby born in an animal shelter, in a feeding trough, in a cave, to Joseph and Mary, to, to nice people, mind you, but nobodies with no name, no money. They appear to be relatively poor and in a little town, and that's it. You would have to have eyes of faith to see God's doing something, and I want to be a part of it. So again, friends, for many people, they do despise the day of small things. So for you tonight, maybe God is doing something in your life, but you're discouraged because it's small. I know for many couples, when they're talking about divorce, and yes, I'm even talking about Christian couples, sadly. When they're talking about divorce and, and you try to work with them and say, hey, here's some ways you can improve. And hey, can you, I, I know you've got big problems. You really do. And these big problems, you want them to be solved in a day. But what if I told you they're not going to be solved in a day, but rather they're going to be solved one little pebble at a time, one little choice, one little word, one little action every day. And it's going to seem as you're doing this for days and days and even weeks and weeks and maybe even months and months that it's nothing. But listen, if, if you will continue to be faithful and you'll continually just chip away at what God's giving you to do, over time you can see that temple that God wants to build in your life. But if people become discouraged because they don't see the change, maybe the, the business isn't growing the way you want. Maybe the marriage isn't going the way you want. Maybe the church isn't growing the way you want. If we get discouraged and we despise the day of small things, we will not be around when God does great things. So don't be offended by humble beginnings for yourself or for others, but rather with eyes of faith, see what God is doing. Know that he loves humble beginnings because that's when he tests the hearts of people to see those who really want to work for God. And lastly, number three, I think we learned from this text, Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. I think that's such a great verse because for me, in a very practical, day-to-day -day sort of way, it brings together these two great themes, these mysteries of human life and of the scriptures. And that is the sovereignty of God and the freedom or responsibility of man. 
you know, in theory, it's hard to figure out, well, how, how can God be completely sovereign and, and how can people actually have the ability to choose? And, and that is a hard thing to parse out. But what I do know is that both of those things are true. And what I love about Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 is it tells us, hey, look, do, do the best you can. Love the Lord your God. Be faithful in what you know to do. But ultimately know this. It doesn't all depend on you. God will get you where he wants you to go. It's like the picture of being in a boat. And people go, well, I don't know where God wants me to go. Does he want me to sail north? Does he want me to sail south? Does he want me to go west or east? Well, friends, human responsibility would say, look, if you don't start paddling, if you don't put up your sail, you're not going to go anywhere. And you can't just say, oh, well, God saw me. He'll, he'll force me to go. No, put up your sail. Do the best you can. Row in the direction you, you believe, whether you're right or wrong, that you believe God is telling you to go but you can trust that he will direct the winds and the sea to take you where you need to go. I see that happening here with Joseph and Mary. I don't know if they're aware of the big grand plan that's happening with Caesar and all this. They're like, hey, I know what the angel told us. I believe God's going to work it out. This order came from Caesar and hey, we're going to go. Uh, I, I know he says he thinks he's the son of God, savior of the world. We don't believe that, but but he's trying to act like it and he's sending us to Bethlehem. We're going to go and God is sovereign over the entire thing and gets them to go exactly where he's going to go. And it even becomes a sign that the babe that is born in the manger, that is the Messiah, will be born in a cave in an animal stable, wrapped in swaddling cloths, laying in a manger, and God uses that as a sign to the shepherds. So friends, in this crazy season where we're still dealing with COVID and a presidential election deal is still kind of going on in the courts and arguing and whatever's going to happen after January 20th, friends, I would just encourage you, keep it simple. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, but lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge God. Do it for the love of God he will direct your paths. If you're really doing what you're doing because you love the Lord and you want to serve him, if you're going in the wrong direction, he's not going to beat you up. He'll get you where he wants you to go. So I just want to encourage all of you that no matter what is going on, there are no conditions in the world, no pain, no suffering, no sorrow, no discomfort, no anxiety, no political turmoil that can stop the true meaning of Christmas any more than all of those things could stop the first Christmas. And what we ultimately need, you and I, to have a good Christmas is Jesus. To humble ourselves, to worship him, to walk in his ways, to bring glory to his name, and trust that God will work out his story his way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for this opportunity to teach your word, to listen to your word, to read it, to meditate, to reflect, and to wrestle over, Lord, who you are presenting yourself to be, that you are the sovereign of the world, but you do not exercise your sovereignty in a way that human beings would if they were in your place. 
but rather we know your ways are higher than our ways and your thoughts higher than ours. We see this here with the story of Jesus. And Lord, I believe we can see it if we have eyes of faith that that holds true today. That Lord, if we were to write 2020 how it would go, it certainly would not be the way that it has gone. But that in no way excludes your sovereignty that you knew this was going to happen and that you are working despite people, despite uh, any political figures seeking to advance their own interests. You are sovereign over all of that and you will get us, your people, where you want us to go. So we need not fear. We need but be faithful. And so, Lord, grant us faithfulness that we might live for you during this very difficult and unpredictable season. I ask for a blessing over my brothers and sisters now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Um, again, everyone, thank you so much for joining us for this Bible study. Um, we're, we'll take prayer requests right now. So I have just a couple of things to say before we go. Um, so if you do have any prayer requests, go ahead and type those in the comment section right now. And um, I'll be happy to pray for those before we go. Um, but we will have a 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time Christmas Eve service. Um, so I just want to uh, encourage you, if you would like uh, to join us for that, it'll be a relatively uh, short service, probably about 45 minutes or so. But we'll have some Christmas songs. We'll do uh, some worship. Um, and then we'll talk about, we'll continue our story um, in the Gospel of Luke, looking at the shepherds and the angelic visit, and of course, their worship of Jesus and their eyes of faith, that they were not offended at the humble beginnings of Jesus, but rather by faith were able to enter in and worship the baby in the manger. So we'll be doing that on Christmas Eve at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. So real quick, I just want to hang on for a minute. Um, if anyone has any prayer requests, um, feel free to share that. Um, again, if any of you, um, perhaps you do have prayer requests, but you can't think of them right now, you can send those to us either through the Facebook Messenger app on Image Church. So feel free to use that. Um, the other thing you can do is you can email us at information at imagechurchoc.com. That's information at imagechurchoc.com. Um, for those of you, if you have any Bible questions, whether it was about the study tonight, if there's anything I can clarify for you, um, if, if, you if you ever don't understand what I'm saying, you're like, hey, did he mean that or was he saying this? I always encourage you, don't, don't just let it linger in your head. Send me a message and I would be happy um, to, to clarify that for you. So feel free to ask any Bible questions that you have. Um, it looks like there's no prayer requests for the night, or at least I can't see any. If if I see some later, I'll, I'll pray for you and I'll let you know. But let me just close with this prayer of blessing. May the grace and truth of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. God bless you, everyone. I see you there. Thank you so much for joining us. And I hope you all have a Merry Christmas. Uh, I see Alex there. Actually, I do see a prayer request. Let me get that. Alex said, all families during these tough times not being given the opportunity to gather. Absolutely, Alex. Thanks for sharing that. I'll pray right now if you'll join with me. Heavenly Father, we just want to lift up uh, all those people and families that are not going to be able to see each other this Christmas because of um, COVID or, or perhaps other uh, personal reasons, Lord. Um, I just pray that your peace would be upon them. You would fill them with their spirit, Lord, that this Christmas would be one of joy, 
not just because traditions are being observed or not observed, but rather because Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the true Son of God, the true Savior of the world, and that by believing we can have life in his name. So, Father, I pray that whatever difficulties, even pains and sorrows we might have this Christmas, I pray you would use those positively in our lives to drive us to the baby in the manger, the humble Savior that was born for us into the conditions of the world such as we see it. And so, Lord, we do pray for comfort for those families. We pray if there is any way for them to see each other that you would make that possible. But, Lord, we do just pray that you would fill everyone with your joy and your peace and your love and that even if alone, Lord, they would not be lonely this Christmas. They would know that you love them, that you are with them, that you will never leave them nor forsake them, Lord. So we just lift them all up to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for joining. Again, God bless you. Merry Christmas. And if you're able to join us Christmas Eve, 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. God bless you all. Bye-bye.